Politics, sports, movies. You are listening to the Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast. Twitter. Twitter. Check out Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast at Bend Your Ear Pod. Instagram at Bend Your Ear Pod. www.letmebendyourear.com. Welcome to the Let Me Bend Your Ear podcast. My name is Frank and I am the host of the show and happy you can join and listen. If you listened to previous episodes, thank you for coming back. If this is the first time you're listening, welcome, and I hope you will enjoy the show and continue to be a listener. This podcast discusses three topics, movies, sports, and politics. Each episode will be dedicated to one of these topics. Today's show will center on movies. The show is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and CastBox under Let Me Bend Your Ear Podcast. Please subscribe to the show on any one of these podcast apps so you can receive new episodes direct to your device when they become available. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. This is a very important and simple way you can help the show reach a wider audience. You can also always get the show from our website, www.letmebendyourear.com. Welcome to part two of Movies in Space. Hopefully you listened to part one in which I reviewed the 2018 Damien Chazelle film First Man, which chronicled the story of Neil Armstrong. In today's episode, I'm going to review the 1983 Philip Kaufman film The Right Stuff, which chronicles the creation of the original Mercury 7 astronauts. So if you ultimately do watch the three films that I cover in this three-part series, I would recommend, as I stated in the previous episode in part one, that you would watch this film first, followed by First Man, followed by Apollo 13. You can watch them in any order you want. I just think it's a it's a fun experience to watch the movies in chronological order as they document the Mercury astronauts segging into Gemini and then into Apollo ultimately. So again, just a fun suggestion if you want to watch them that way, but you can watch them in any order you want. But I am looking forward to the review of this film, and I hope you enjoy the review of The Right Stuff. Today I'm going to discuss the 1983 film directed by and written by Philip Kaufman called The Right Stuff. I was very excited to revisit this movie when I came up with this three-part series of movies in space. As I stated in the previous episode, I had reviewed and watched First Man, the excellent Damien Chazelle film, which you can hear my review of in part one of this series. And as I was watching First Man, it gave me the idea and actually just a thought of two other movies uh, regarding the space pro- program popped in my head as I was watching First Man, uh, Apollo 13, and this film, The Right Stuff. Uh, so it was uh, exciting to revisit this movie. This movie came out in 1983. It's based on the novel of the same name by author Tom Wolfe. I saw this film probably around that time, so we're, we're talking over 30 years ago. I had remembered the film being a very good film and, and remembered enjoying it. And having not seen it since then, I was curious to see what my feelings of the film would be upon revisiting it for this podcast. And I'm delighted to say that I absolutely love the movie. I'll give you my official Van Gogh review of it later. But suffice to say, as I discuss the film now, uh, you'll definitely see my obvious affection for it. I think it's an outstanding film. The film clocks in at three hours and 13 minutes. Uh, It's a very in-depth look at the Mercury astronauts, but don't let the running time 
scare you off. This is an excellent, excellent film. I enjoyed every minute of it. And in no time as I was watching it did I feel that the movie was slow or long. I never felt the three-hour length of it. It was it was immersive, and I enjoyed it very much. So let's get into the uh, discussion of the movie. So the movie, of course, chronicles the Mercury 7 astronauts. Before I start my review, I just want to name the astronauts for you right off the top so you kind of have a, a reference of their names. So you've got John Glenn, Wally Schirra, Gordo Cooper, Deke Slayton, Virgil Gus Grissom, Scott Carpenter, and Alan B. Shepard. So that is the that was the original Mercury 7 astronauts. Now the film opens actually not with one of the Mercury 7, but with test pilot Chuck Yeager. So to anyone who knows anything about aviation and, and historical milestones in aviation, uh, Chuck Yeager's name is, is prominent among them. And as the film opens, we get to see Chuck Yeager in 1947 break the sound barrier. So he's the first pilot to go Mach 1 and make history as the first pilot to break the sound barrier, which at the time there was speculation that it, could it even be done? Was it even possible? Was it a scientific theory uh, or something that really occurred? So Sam Shepard uh, playing Chuck Yeager breaks the sound barrier. Now, shortly after that, uh, Scott Crossfield, who's actually played by the late Scott Wilson, if you watch the television series The Walking Dead, uh, he was on for a couple of seasons as the veterinarian um, that takes in the group of people that were uh, fleeing from the zombies. Um, very good actor. He was actually in Cold Blood as well. He just recently passed away. So he plays Scott Crossfield, who is the first pilot to go Mach 2. Uh, so that happened shortly after Chuck Yeager went Mach 1. On December 12th of 1953, Chuck Yeager goes to Mach 2.5. And one theme that you'll see among several themes that are played out throughout this film is the theory of pushing the envelope and what pilots do. So test pilots are by nature, wouldn't want to say reckless, but basically fearless. And Chuck Yeager is shown in this film as someone that's willing to push the envelope and wants to get to the edge and surpass it uh, while breaking these specific records. Uh, early in the film, you also see his wife, played by Barbara Hershey, having discussions about the danger of what he does and and the stress that it puts on her and that's another theme you'll see recurring through the film regarding the effect of of what these pilots and astronauts do uh, on their wives and families and as you watch these three films uh, specifically first man and this film the right stuff that theme is played out pretty specifically how how the the inherent danger of what they're doing uh, puts a strain uh, on the wives and families of these astronauts that are doing something that they love to do, but is something that's extremely, extremely dangerous. Now, the film moves along uh, to 1957, and this is what we call the beginning of the space race. So in 1957, Russia launched the Sputnik rocket into space. Uh, so Sputnik goes up first, and they put a monkey up in space. So they are the first country to shoot a rocket into space so of course the united states is very very distressed by this because obviously we're in the middle of the cold war and russia is the united states mortal enemy of course in the united states it would be unacceptable and was unacceptable and feared that russia was getting into space ahead of the united states obviously not so much for the mystery and the science of getting into space of course this is framed around 
if Russia gets into space first and is good at it, they're going to be able to use the technology or use the ability to get in space to obtain a strategic and or military advantage against the United States. So obviously a lot of panic in the United States regarding Russia's trip into space. So President How President Eisenhower, in a scene that's played out in the movie, uh, wants to start a space program to compete and surpass the Russians. So there's a f- uh, funny meeting that's played out in the movie where they're deciding who they're going to pick to be the astronauts in this space program. And there's all kinds of speculation about the types of people that they want. And the thing that's funny about it is, is pilots aren't even considered by the first series of people that speak about it. And so President Eisenhower, of course, a famous military general, basically says, I want test pilots. And then he gets major pushback from the other people in the room, like, no, test pilots are cocky. They don't listen. They do things on their own. They're cowboys. And Eisenhower's like, that's what I want. And and in hindsight, that turned out to be a very wise decision. So in a funny, another funny scene after that, you've got two recruiters that are played by young Jeff Goldblum and Harry Shearer of Simpsons fame and voiceover work are sent from Washington to Edwards Air Force Base to go see what pilots are there and to and to and to start to recruit them so you've got another great scene in the movie where they go into this bar so there's a pilot's bar located by the edwards air force base where you see pictures of pilots all over the wall all over the wall there's just hundreds of photos of of different pilots and gordo cooper played by dennis quay goes into the bar and he looks up on the wall sees all these photos of the pilots and he asks the 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 woman that works at the bar says, hey, how do you get your picture up on that wall? And she responds with all seriousness, you die. That's how you get on that wall. So again, that theme is underscored in this film that that what these pilots were doing at this time in history were was extremely, extremely dangerous. And I would argue probably with a high probability of failure. And a lot of and a lot of pilots died and pilots you've never heard of, pilots you would never know. But these other pilots do know them and they have a place of respect in this bar by having their picture up on the wall. So again, another solemn moment and just an underscores the reminder of the danger. Uh, and I think people forget how dangerous this line of work is. So as they're recruiting the Mercury 7 astronauts, uh, they're asking, you know, who are the better astronauts there are the better, excuse me, the better pilots there. And there's an exchange where they're, where Goldblum and Shearer are describing what their criteria is for a astronaut they want them to be college educated they want them to know this know that kind of all these kind of standard criteria not that they're not reasonable but the uh, the gentleman at the bar as well that that knows all these pilots basically responds to their list of of qualifications with oh so what you're saying is you don't want the best filer pilots so of course they're like no 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 of course we do they're like well the best filer pilots don't necessarily go to college or have graduated college so basically letting them know that their criteria is kind of um not the best way to approach it so eventually the mercury 7 gets selected through a rigorous process physical exams testing um and you'll see that you'll see a montage of that playing out and and uh, the astronauts that I listed earlier are chosen to be part of the Mercury 7 program. Conspicuously, Chuck Yeager is not chosen uh, to be in the space program. So while you see him early in the movie and he pops up more as the movie progresses, and I'll get into that as I get into the review further, uh, he is not chosen to be one of the Mercury 7 astronauts. So the Mercury 7 are brought together to 
start their training. And uh, a couple of fun things in the movie. I was there was a scene where a couple of the astronauts are led into an elevator after they <laughs> after they do one of the tests. So essentially, they have enemas stuck up their butts, and there's a attendant there, a Hispanic attendant that's taking them to another room after their test is completed, and they really have to use the bathroom. Uh, the the attendant is played by Anthony Munoz, which if you are a football fan is uh, a name you would know. He is the Hall of Fame offensive tackle that played for the Cincinnati Bengals. I never knew, one, that he acted, and two, that he was in this movie. Again, I hadn't seen this movie in 30 years, and I think at the time I didn't even realize that that was him, even though I knew at the time who Anthony Munoz was. It was it was uh, kind of really surprising to see him in the movie, so that was kind of funny to to see him actually in this film. I don't know if he's done any other acting other than that film uh, or how he ended up in that movie. I'll probably do some research to see how he was put in that movie, but it was pretty hilarious to see him uh, acting in it, so it was kind of funny, a nice surprise. So in 1960, as the film progresses, uh, they start testing rockets to go up to, to get to space, and it's usually it's the Atlas rocket that they start with, so... There's another montage where there is a series of explosions on the pad. They're unable to get this rocket up for some reason. There's all kinds of mishaps, and you'll see a montage of that in the movie. So, again, Russia beats the United States to the punch. Uh, They start by sending a monkey up into space successfully and bringing him back down, which, uh, again, distresses the United States, but even more so, Russia sends Yuri Gagarin up into space. So the United States actually, let me take that back. The United States actually sends a monkey up, brings the monkey back. So there's another scene where the astronauts are annoyed because they feel that NASA has more faith in the monkeys than they do the astronauts. And then at this point, Russia sends up Yuri Gagarin. So he becomes the first man in space. So of course, at that point, this becomes a turning point uh, in the pro in the space race. Obviously, with Russia clearly taking the lead, uh, not only being the first in space, but sending the first man into space. So uh, again, the United States uh, goes into hyperdrive to try to catch up and hopefully ultimately surpass the Russians. One of the great things about the right stuff and why I think the movie is is three hours long, and I think it it's it helps that it is that long is the depth that it goes to about other things surrounding it so obviously the astronauts at this point are treated like rock stars there's a there's a great scene where the astronauts as they're getting to know each other and as they start because obviously you've got seven different personalities different types of people uh the portrayals are a little bit different so john glenn played by ed harris is the kind of boy scout straight arrow uh, astronaut you know that he's your he's your poster boy for the program and you've got gordon cooper played by dennis quaid who's cocky uh you've got alan shepherd who's cocky but kind of in a different way uh you've got deke slayton who's kind of the the mild-mannered one uh raleigh Shira is very quiet uh so you've got different personalities uh of these astronauts but the one thing they have in common is that they're all pilots and uh, they know what it's like and the danger that's inherent in it. But again, there's a great scene when they are arguing because some of the astronauts are kind of taking advantage of their fame because they're basically at this point equal to rock stars and, and they're kind of enjoying the life a little bit. There's groupies, there's young girls involved, you know, that they're hanging out with and 
and kind of acting like rock stars. And of course, obviously, you know, these astronauts are married. So there's a, a scene where John Glenn is scolding uh, the other astronauts and they have a big blow up about it. And the scene resolves itself with basically saying, look, we're in this together. We need to not let anything get in our way or distract us. So uh, another great scene there uh, that uh, kind of um, helps them become closer together. So as they go, Alan Shepard is actually chosen to be the first man to launch. So his is a 15-minute flight. He goes up, comes back down. And I know hearing that now, you're like, big deal. Since, you know, we've, ha we've seen what's happened in the space program since. But, of course, then that was a huge deal. So he comes back home after a successful landing and has a big celebration at the White House. The other astronauts are there. His wife gets to meet Jackie Kennedy. Of course, Kennedy's president at this time. Uh, they, they get the whole shebang, the whole celebration. Now, Gus Grissom ends up going up next. So he goes up, he comes down. So if you remember, or if you know how the space program worked, they would launch a rocket up into space. The rocket would stay up there for a limited amount of time. The capsule would come back down uh, and splash land in the water. Uh, so that was the, the basic uh, MO of how they did that. So Gus Grissom's flight came back. He goes down, lands in the water, but there's an issue in the capsule and the capsule so there's explosives in the hatch to open the hatch so it opens by explosive so the hatch explodes before it's supposed to now gus grissom insists that there's a malfunction that caused the explosion now if you see if you watch the scene in the capsule it seems like uh, grissom is panicking a little bit and nasa believes that he executed the hatch blowing up before it was supposed to be done so there's a scene after that he's insisting there was a malfunction. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't do anything. And basically, NASA doesn't believe him. Uh, they basically say, we've tested this hatch in every single way. There's no way that that hatch would have blown accidentally. So as a result of this, instead of the White House celebration that Alan Shepard got, Gus Grissom gets basically a ceremony at the airfield with a band and with the head of NASA there no president no anything and there's a great scene with gus grissom and his wife where his wife is incensed that they were not going to the white house all she was looking forward to is meeting jackie kennedy now at first when you look at it you think well she's being kind of selfish and not really thinking about what had happened and what uh, her husband had gone through but when you look into it deeper uh, i think it underscores the the tough position that the wives are put in uh, while she wanted that she felt she was owed that. She felt that the fact that these wives are married to husbands that willingly put themselves in danger and every time they go up in a rocket, there's a good chance that their husband's not coming back. And when they do come back successfully, that they deserve that face time with the president and the first lady. So when you look at it that way, it makes complete sense and it's a great scene. And again, it underscores just like the astronauts form a camaraderie with each other. You can obviously see that the wives also uh, form uh, a bond. There's starts off a little rocky where it comes to John Glenn's wife. When they first meet John Glenn and his wife, uh, the wives kind of think that John Glenn's wife is kind of a little stuck up, a little conceited. But what they don't know in the movie uh, does a beautiful job portraying is uh, John Glenn's wife has a very severe stutter. So, of course, she's not very talkative. She's, she's very self-conscious about that. And obviously, in the, in the early 60s, something like that would be 
you know, not exactly embraced uh, or, or, or understood. Uh, so she definitely was not a fan of speaking in public and didn't do it basically at all. There's actually a beautiful scene later on I'll get to when John Glenn um, orbits the Earth. So the next one, well, actually I'll get to that now. So John Glenn gets the call to orbit the Earth. Uh, so the backdrop to that is, again, the Atlas rocket is kind of uh, iffy there because of the the inherent danger of this particular mission a lot of the precautions are not followed in the sense that they kind of tr streamline what they're going to do so the risk inherent in this particular flight is going to be super high uh, so they're telling john glenn this as a matter of being transparent thinking you know is he going to do it is he not going to do it john glenn's like let's go i'm in let's do it so he gets ready to go and as he's waiting in the capsule to launch the press is in front of the wives' houses. Vice President Lyndon Johnson wants to speak to John Glenn's wife. Uh, again, she has a terrible stutter. She's in the house with the other wives. And uh, one of the other wives asks, I think it's uh, Gordo's wife, asks her, hey, do you want to talk to the, to the media? And she's like, absolutely not. No. So they all, they all rally around her. And the scene is hilarious because you literally see Lyndon Johnson in a car outside John Glenn's house basically throwing a temper tantrum because... John Glenn's wife refuses to talk to him. So literally, they get John Glenn. The flight ends up getting canceled. They put John Glenn on the phone with his wife saying, look, you need to talk to your wife. And you need to tell her she needs to talk to the vice president. And you're half thinking when, when John Glenn picks up the phone that he's going to have his wife do that. So he picks up the phone, talks to her and says, honey, if you don't want to talk to the president or anybody, you don't have to talk to anybody. And I'll back you up. So, of course, the, the, the head of the program is, is played by John P. Ryan is beside himself going, what are you doing? And basically says, you cannot do that. You have to have her talk to the vice president. He's supporting this whole space program. And John Glenn's like, that's not happening. So then the head of program makes the mistake of saying, well, then maybe I need to start switching around flight assignments for who's going to orbit the Earth. So all the other guys rally around Glenn and say, well, who are you going to pick? Basically telling him, if you move these assignments around, none of us are going to accept it. So basically forcing his hand and things stayed the way they were. And then ultimately, John Glenn gets the next flight and ends up orbiting the Earth, becoming the first man to do so. It was supposed to be a seven orbit uh, trip, but it had to be moved down to three. There was a malfunction light that came on, a landing back light that came on, and uh, that facilitated or necessitated him having to come back early but again he came back successfully and of course was a worldwide hero being the first man to orbit the earth and of course getting the chance to beat the russians at doing that so uh, as i stated earlier chuck yeager is in the film but he pops in sporadically throughout the film uh watching the astronauts progress uh while he's still doing his his uh test piloting of aircraft uh, what you see is kind of, and which is a theme also that runs throughout these movies, is how we all get used to stuff really quickly. So at the beginning of the film, you know, Chuck Yeager is a is a is a hero in the sense, you know, breaking the sound barrier. That was the big thing to do, and that made him, you know, world famous, and everybody, you know, knew who he was. But as the astronaut program, Mercury program progressed, and 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 rockets were flying into space, uh, you could see that. It, people the things that chuck yeager was doing was kind of obsolete and i think the movie portrays him kind of feeling left out not so much maybe that he wishes he was a mercury 7 astronaut but i think more so that what he felt he was doing was still important uh there's a scene later in the film where he basically steals a plane to to take it up as high as he can take it 
altitude wise into the stratosphere i would assume i'm not an uh, aeronautics expert but i think that's what he was trying to do to get out there uh, into the lower levels of space uh, and there's a mishap on that one but i think you see kind of chuck yeager looking from afar and feeling like the world's kind of leaving him behind or or what he did is not seen with as much reverence as it was previously so that kind of underscores the film as he uh, pops in and out of it and you see uh, how chuck yeager responds to it so again a lot of the themes that run through this film before i wrap it up is i i see themes of danger they the film really does a great job as did first man of really bringing home the the inherent danger of what they're doing and the thing that i noticed in this movie too is you're really looking at the dawn of the space program so you're literally looking at human beings doing something that's never been done before and really and me i am not a math wizard and i'm not that's not my strong suit and you really see even though they don't get into it in depth you see it's 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 very it's unbelievably fascinating how the mathematics of it are so important in space travel whether it's you know what you need the thrust you need to to escape the earth's gravity or in the thing that i really took the notice the most of and they talk about it in this movie and john glenn's re-entry because uh, there were some issues with it so and if you'll you'll learn it too if you watch apollo 13 you get kind of a quick science lesson obviously when you come into the earth's atmosphere you just don't drop into the earth's atmosphere and land you have to hit it at a certain trajectory at a certain angle at a certain speed or you will literally careen off the atmosphere or if you don't careen off the atmosphere and you come in at the wrong angle you would literally burn up upon re-entry so that's why if you look at the space program with either capsules or with the space shuttle most famously if you remember how the space shuttle came in it would come in bottom first and the bottom would have heat shields uh to prevent the craft from burning up so these movies really show the 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 danger and what they were doing they were going into uncharted territory where even though they were doing it in mathematically based uh, decisions, a lot of it's theoretical. And, you know, math is math, but when you're up there in space, you can't account for things that could go wrong. Uh, so I think the movie does an excellent job of that. Like I said, there's always an undertone in these uh, movies of tragedy and sacrifice and death, but I don't mean that it makes it dark because there's a lot of funny moments in the in the right stuff and i think the right stuff is a is a celebration of the mercury 7 program i think it's a very positive look at it showing some of the warts but uh i think the the undertone of tragedy and death is essential to the story and the filmmakers make the wise choice in telling the story as accurately as they can by putting that element in there and i appreciate that element too because i think i always knew the inherent danger of what the, of going into space but i think as we've done it for almost 50 years now we are over 50 years now we we do take it for granted when a rocket goes up that we just goes up does what it does comes back down it almost becomes a matter of something very simple and something that we take for granted now myself growing up in florida i've had close proximity to the space program my personal memories of the space program i was very lucky to see the first space shuttle launch you know now the whole world watched it but it was happening literally three hours from where i live so i was very invested in and the space program especially in the 80s when i was growing up so obviously it was the shuttle and uh of course uh, the triumph of the first launch in 1981 uh, but unfortunately living through uh the challenger explosion 
in the late 80s uh, that killed uh, the teacher and the other astronauts that were in space and then the explosion that happened a few years later so two tragedies again even though we had been 30 years at that point into the space program and and things were running very smoothly we got two unfortunate brutal reminders of how dangerous this operation is so anytime i see a rocket going to space with with astronauts on it uh, i always kind of have that cautious optimism and and i do appreciate how dangerous what they're doing is and i never see it at least myself as something that's that's matter of fact or something that's just a run of the mill and 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 without danger so that's a that's a thing that's a theme that it's underscored that i really appreciate about that but the film the right stuff culminates with the may 15th 1963 launch with gordo cooper in the capsule and that orbited the earth 22 times so he became first man to do the longest orbit around the earth a uh, number of orbits around the earth and became the last man to actually go into space by himself so that uh that's how the right stuff ends with that particular flight and there's some voiceover narration uh and as i stated in the review of first man so gus grissom in this film played by actor fred ward they discussed that four years after the flight of gordo cooper uh unfortunately gus grissom was was killed during a test launch for apollo uh so he was killed along with uh, roger chaffee and ed white so again that tragedy does play out uh and they talk about it in, in my review of first man uh, they actually uh have a scene regarding that that tragedy uh so you kind of underscores that and gus grissom you know unfortunately became the most famous for for unfortunately passing away along with the other two astronauts uh but it's good to see his life portrayed in this film and also in first band so you can see you know learn something about him uh, his 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 love for for being a pilot and being an astronaut and then of course him giving the ultimate sacrifice to this program so again that theme of of tragedy and danger uh and death uh is definitely something that hangs over the program and just you know makes one have a lot more respect for what these men volunteer to do uh there's a line in the film and i forgot which astronaut said it that oh i think it was uh chuck yeager actually uh when someone was kind of bad mouthing the astronauts uh chuck oh when gus grissom's plane had an issue or his flight had an issue and chuck yeager stuck up for him and said hey look anybody that's volunteers for a mission that's a suicide mission is someone that should be respected and not criticized or made fun of so uh, that was something that was well done in the movie so again the right stuff is three hours and 13 minutes the film came out in 1983 directed and written by philip kaufman he is a renowned screenwriter uh, he wrote the outlaw jesse jesse josie wales excuse me director by clint eastwood i believe he contributed to the story and screenplay on raiders of the lost ark um and he's directed uh, a few films but uh, this one is obviously an epic film the three hour and 13 minute length like i said don't let that dissuade you from watching this film this film does not feel like it's three hours long it's fantastic if you have any interest in the space program or the history of the mercury 7 uh, like i said i knew somewhat about the space program my entry into it is we all knew neil armstrong went on the moon my real interest in the space program where i actually did research actually was based on the book by jim lovell uh the commander of apollo 13 called lost moon so that bestseller became the basis for the film apollo 13 
uh, which came out in 1995, directed by Ron Howard, which I'll be reviewing in part three of this series. Uh, but that really got my entry into space. I mean, like I said, I watched the shuttle shuttles go up, but learning about the space program, if you don't know much about it or kind of know just the basic stuff, I highly recommend uh, these three movies, and I definitely recommend The Right Stuff. It's it's outstanding. The performances are spectacular throughout. So again, you've got a cast of Sam Shepard, Dennis Quaid, Fred Ward, Lance Hendrickson, Scott Glenn. It's a great group of, of actors playing these astronauts. The wives are fantastic as well. You have some some actresses that you may know, Veronica Cartwright, Kathy Baker, um, Barbara Hershey, Pamela Reed, really good actresses in the roles as well. And as I stated, the wives a lot of times get short shrift. I said that in my review of First Man. I mean, that's a theme here. But they do a pretty good job, and this is the advantage of having a movie uh, at three hours. Uh, the wives get a little bit more play here as far as screen time and showing uh, the effects of the program on them. Uh, so, like I said, it's not going to be anywhere on par with the astronauts, but they do get at least a little more time to to show or they show that aspect of it which i think is also an interesting aspect that especially back at the time you really don't get uh, a lot of because obviously at the time back then it was all about the astronauts the wives were just there to be endlessly supportive and always happy about what their husbands were doing and and you know patriotic and all of that you know rah rah usa stuff not that they didn't believe it but obviously there's a a backstory of of the inherent danger and the worry that they had to live with every day as their husbands uh participated in this program so again they did a great job uh, of having the wives uh perspective on here as well so again i highly recommend the right stuff it's really really good like i said my concern obviously when you revisit a movie after 30 years and me remembering it as good as am i going to think it's as good as it was before as am i going to be disappointed is any part of it going to feel dated and uh i can happily say after re-watching the right stuff that it's a fantastic film fantastic film and I highly, highly recommend it. So on my Van Gogh scale review of five Van Goghs, I'm going to give the right stuff four and a half Van Gogh. So I'm, I highly recommend it. I highly recommend you seek it out. Uh, I didn't have it myself. I ended up buying, buying it on Blu-ray. Uh, and I'm glad I did. Uh, you can rent it uh, where you can stream movies. So if you don't want to buy it, you can always rent it to watch it. I do not believe it's available anywhere uh, via Netflix or Hulu that you already pay for if you have those subscription services, but you can definitely rent it, rent it on uh, Amazon or purchase it. But it's a fantastic film. Uh, so again, my review of Philip Kaufman's The Right Stuff, four and a half Van Goghs out of five. Thank you for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on any of the following podcasting apps, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or CastBox. You can subscribe to the show's YouTube channel under Let Me Bend Your Ear Podcast. Follow the show on Twitter. The handle is at Bend Your Ear Pod. Uh, that is also the handle for Instagram. If you have any questions or comments, you can email the show. The email address is bendyourearpodcast at gmail.com. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. If you listen to the show on a different platform but have iTunes, please rate and review the show there. This will help raise the profile of the show and search results. If you think a friend would enjoy this podcast, please share it on your social media. Again, thank you for listening and take care.